Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to share their insights with you. Before we get into our conversation for this episode, we just want to thank you for checking out Behavior Grooves. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or at least leave us a quick rating or a review. It doesn't take long and it will help you get one of your New Year's resolutions over before the end of January. That is, if you actually had the New Year's resolution of reviewing us or subscribing to us or just giving us a quick review. Anyway, because we like helping people achieve their goals, you can just go ahead and stop this right now and do it. I think that's fantastic. And speaking of reviews, we got a really nice review this week from Vicki, who wanted to share her thoughts on our recent episode with Jonah Berger. She said, quote, absolutely engaging. You guys have managed to deliver tons of insights in a cheerful note. Congrats. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you. You know, and Kurt, I just have to ask, did you get that little musical pun there with, you know, cheerful note? Cheerful note? Cheerful yeah. Note. I- yeah, I got nice, it, Tim. Nice right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you I, get that? I, I get it. Yes, we, we we bring music into this this thing because you wanted to bring music into this, and <laughs> and, and it I worked. do, and it worked, and I appreciate it. Actually, I've become a convert. I give you grief, but I am a convert. <laughs> really, really, there. All right. Um, more importantly, thank you, Vicky, and thank you to all of you who take a moment to rate the podcast or give us a quick review. Uh, These reviews go a long, long way in helping behavioral grooves get discovered by people searching for new podcasts. And we really appreciate your effort there. Yeah. Okay. So just to reiterate the importance of these very, very simple gestures, like writing a review or giving us a quick rating, it's like paying it forward for the next listener. Your review or rating moves us up in the recommendation algorithms and actually helps people discover what you've already come to know is a really great resource for applied behavioral science. All right. So Tim, let's get on with our conversation. Who are we featuring in this episode? Oh, we are featuring the totally fabulous Nula Walsh, Kurt. Nula is a founding member and non-executive director of GABS, the world's first association for practitioners of behavioral science. She is the vice chair for the UN Women's Subcommittee for Risk and Governance, where they promote human rights to neutralize gender inequality through advocacy and awareness. And Nula is also the founder of Mind Equity, a behavioral science consultancy helping companies with reputation management, culture and conduct change, and communications and decision-making. And that's after 20-plus years in the corporate world with companies like Standard Life and BlackRock. She's another classic underachiever, right, Tim? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I I think we actually need to get some actual underachievers on the show because all these people are achieving so much. Just make me feel, well, inadequate. I don't don't know. Totally. All right. Enough of my troubles here. So um, we talked to, to Nula about some research she's done recently into two areas of corporate life that we thought were particularly important. The first is about how we remember fake news, just as if it were real news. And the second is about whistleblowing in the corporate world. She even offers some great tips on how to build a culture that gives employees a strong sense of psychological safety so that they can report on bad behaviors without worrying about retaliation. 
So with that, we encourage you to sit back and relax with a draft of Guinness, a crust of brown bread, and a shot of whistleblower preparedness, (laughs) and enjoy our conversation with Nula Walsh. Nula Walsh, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks, Tim. Uh, It's great to be here. It is a pleasure to have you here, and we're going to get started with a speed round. Kurt, did you want to get started? Sure. All right. We're going to start off with our our old-time favorite. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea for breakfast, coffee for afternoon. Oh, Oh. that's backwards than than, than some of our other guests who have done exactly the opposite of that. (laughs) Irish, I would have expected all day. Well, uh, Coffee all day and wine in the evening. So I don't want to break. I don't want to break your your binary question. Maybe we're going to have to start asking that question. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wine and not Guinness, huh? All right, there we go. Regular bread or brown bread? Brown bread with the tea for breakfast every day. Every day, nice. All right, all right. So dinner with your favorite behavioral scientist, sports star, or musician. I'm going to go for, it's not a behavioral scientist, no offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hoping you were going to ask me about actor, actually, but, you know, I'll go for, I'll go for musician. Musician. All right. So if, if you were going to have an actor, who would, who would that have been? Well, I would have picked if it was an actor. I'd have gone for, I'd have gone for Anthony Hopkins or Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and Tim will want to know which musician you would like to pick, because that's, that's Tim's groove. Tim, that's, that's such an obvious question with such an obvious answer. The answer has to be the songwriter for another Orion. Of course, oh. that would be Tim. <laughs> oh. Okay, this, is, this just got really embarrassing all of a sudden. <laughs> all right, let's keep moving with the <laughs> last question in the speed round. Uh, what's the likelihood of fake news getting ingrained in your memory as real news? Very high. Okay, well, let's let's talk about that. Uh, tell us how you come to know that. The it's, it's it's a great question and it's a real problem. The answer is quite simply down to the mere exposure effect. Uh, there are so many repeated uh, news stories. Um, that the more you hear, I mean, scientists have shown that, you know, repeated exposure to stories, whether it's on news feeds or reading, increases not just, I guess, the story's credibility, but also its its plausibility. And, and, and it just creates a new false memory in the same way. And they've proven, this has been proven several, several um, times. And even when people are warned against it, even when people are told there's a danger of fake news, um, it contributes to... I guess what they call a memory stickiness uh, or fake fragments. So the more you hear it, the more you believe it's true. So, and even when, when the facts are disproved, um, which is of course the, the illusory truth effect, um, it, it doesn't make a difference. It's perceived reality. And, you know, we're just basically really poor, not only that, but then we're really poor at detecting deception. So I did find a study um, that was a meta study that found that actually said that there were 206 different studies that concluded that we spot deception only 4% of the time. Now, obviously, the, 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 the corollary of that is that 96% of the time we are highly gullible. 
Oh my gosh, that seems amazing. And and we we tend to think that we are better at detecting lies than we are too. Isn't that isn't there some aspect of of truth there? Yes, well, we do. Well, I mean, you can look at you can look at the the above average effect, which basically <laughs> means that we think we're better at detecting lies in the same way we think we're better dancers, communicators, drivers, and everything else. So. If you add in the overconfidence effect, if you add in um, any egotistical bias, you'll find that that is not really a surprise, Kurt. Um, yeah. You know, we can't help it. Which, which then lends itself into this fake news being even more insidious in, in kind of getting into the, the vernacular of, that we have in our memories and, and just the general discourse that we have because we we would know i can i can detect the fake news and yet so this obviously isn't and then it just gets transmitted even that much more quickly right exactly and and i think um i think dan gilbert has written uh, about it as well and you know he says that it's it's we we find it very easy to believe um, and it's much harder to doubt i suppose if you think about it uh, you know, that the, the fact that it's easy, we, we always look for the easy answer, we answer the easy question, not the hard question, right. and, uh, and the lack of critical thinking, I mean, it's effort, it's, it's system two, we don't want to go down that route, so it's actually simpler to just to just take take the news that, that you're given, so it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, a re, it's a real problem, and, you know, I'm afraid it's, it's not getting, not getting any easier and I think I did. Re- I did read something that had that wasn't there. A study that showed seventy uh, percent of people. It was an MIT study. Seventy percent of people were more likely to retweet retweet falsehoods than the truth. And of course, they'll travel six times faster than anything else. So it's a compounding error. It's it's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, Annie Duke recently uh, sent out a, a newsletter where she pointed out that that President Trump recently claimed in a tweet he said that no president has ever won both Ohio and Florida and lost the election. Uh, he won both. Ohio and Florida, but he actually, of course, he did lose the election. And in fact, that that claim wasn't true. He, uh, it, apparently, um, Richard Nixon had this very same experience in 1960. And I thought it was interesting uh, because what Annie pointed out was lots and lots of, you know, sarcastic, you know, anti-Trumpers getting in there and saying, well, that's just baloney. But none of them actually challenged the underlying fact. They didn't actually do the research to understand that the, that it, the claim itself wasn't true. And, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's really interesting that if, if we don't challenge these false claims, people are, are, are people just going to remember things, you know, constantly that even though they're not true, uh, well, I think they are. And, and, and you, I mean, you mentioned, you bring up a good point about Trump. I think it, it, on one of your previous podcasts, I'm not sure who it was, but somebody found that wasn't there. Uh, Trump was responsible for 38% uh, of, 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 of misinformation or disinformation. And that, of course, all goes back to the messenger effect. Mm-hmm. So the power of who's giving the message, um, I think, is one thing. Um, so it's not just that, but as you say, it's also then about, about the people who are recipients. The more you trust the messenger, the more people trust, you know, whether it's Trump or anyone else. I mean, people, 
people can, can give out misinformation unintentionally because it's such a cumulative effect. It becomes a false memory. A parent can, can do it. You know, so people can very innocently doing this. It doesn't always have to have malicious intent. Um, so people can innocently do it. And that's the problem with, with the compounding error like this, that we hear things and because it's just repeated, uh, we believe it's true and therefore it just becomes ingrained. And, you know, Kahneman talks about the, you know, the, the, the experiencing self and the remembering self. It's the, rem- it's the misremembering self. It's not even the remembering self. Mm. And because we are all prone to misremembering, it, 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 the problem gets even worse. So I guess my argument is that, you know, false memories are as dangerous as, you know, fake news because it's a similar, it's a similar process. They look they look very different, and of course there are you know a number of differences between them. But what they have in common is the fact that they're both flawed associative mechanisms. They both spread information, and um, in, in this networked ecosystem of data, um, none of them, neither of them, have warning flags. So they're very hard to detect and control. But but both of them are fundamentally rooted in, I guess. Um, inaccurate premises which become layered and layered into our belief system over time and that makes all of us vulnerable to error delusion um, and potentially regret and of course in conditions of either uncertainty or distraction um, you know or we're just busy we become cognitively overloaded and and, and distracted and, and going back to the first point we don't have the time to, to, to think about it and check it, check the, these facts and this information, or even to probe our own memories. And no, but nobody wants to think, you know, we all prize our memories and they're very special to everybody and we want to keep them intact. So even the idea that they may be false and they may be, they may be erroneous isn't something that people, people readily want to, to engage in. But I think uh, it, it, it was Elizabeth Loftus, she did one, one study, but herself and, and Pickrell might have been, basically did some experiments where they tried to implant deliberately false false information. Um, and they tried a couple of different things which are really interesting. One was uh, the false idea that someone had got lost in a shopping mall, uh, that someone had spilled punch at a family wedding, um, or that someone got lost, you know, a child got lost in the car and released the handbrake and it rolled into something. And these experiments then kind of got progressively worse, if you like, or more serious. And they they they, they kind of um, um, planted the, these messages around where somebody punched somebody or somebody was punched or someone was attacked by an animal or committed a crime. So they, they did a whole, there's a whole variety of false memories um, being deliberately implanted rather than um, automatically implanted, which is what we do. And the findings were, were very clear that basically people really, really struggled to see the difference between what was real and what was false. And if you add in this fake news phenomenon now, I think it makes that whole that whole area really, really difficult. And if you're in business and you're doing it in a business environment, it, it creates a whole cascade of unintended consequences for businesses, customers, and shareholders. All right. Well, there's a, there's a lot, I think, within that that, that I want to come back to and, and unpack, particularly around some of the... the mismemory, mis- false memories, but also this, you know, the impact that that has on business. But before we do that, so we, you, we talked about the, you know, Trump and and his component, and that was, it was, a, I believe it was around 
30, about, about a third of the misinformation uh, around coronavirus was attributed yeah. to Trump because of, as you mentioned, the, the messenger effect. And I think what is really interesting about that is that Trump has done a really good job and, and, and others around him of making the other sources of information uh, within his followers to be very skeptical. So, so in other words, that, that the idea that there is fake news, the fake news comes from some other people. And so you're actually limiting people's kind of desire or, or even willingness to go out and to uh, address looking at, to, to see if, if the information is real and really just saying, I am the only person you can trust. And, and I think that has to go and, and, Whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, I think both sides are probably doing it to to a certain degree. Obviously, it's pretty apparent when you're when you're looking at our current president right now. Um, how does that play into some of this element? I mean, we we talked about the the difficulty it is that we are naturally inclined to just believe. It was the you know the quote that that Tim brought up from Andy Duke and some of the stuff that you said about how it's easier. But if it's really actually going out and saying, hey, not only is it easier just to believe me, but the other side is going to be telling you lies anyway, even if they're not, how, how does that play in from your perspective? I think you have to look at Trump. And, and again, I take your point. It, it's irrelevant what side of the spectrum you're on. He's actually done a marvelous job of creating doubt and creating creating this, 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 this binary view. And the fact that it's, it's, you know, whether it's him or his acolytes or people around him, it creates it creates tremendous doubt in people's mind as to you know what is real and, and what isn't. And it's a very clever tactic, I think, to get other people to you know give the bad news for you know for for you or to say these things. Um, it almost it almost takes away from him, so it's not just him that's doing it. It's it's this other group around it. And in fairness, I think that happens in companies uh, all all the time as well at a different scale. Um, and to a different degree, and you know, it doesn't have quite the consequences of, of, of a president doing it. Um, but I think, I think, I think it's very consistent with with all that we've been talking about. But I think it makes it even more dangerous because it's so polemic, and it has such serious consequences for people who who just readily accept it, rather than you know, to Tim's point, rather than or to Annie's point, which is you know, actually query it. But, but it's not surprising because we hold, we, you know, people, people, whoever you admire, whoever you hold up, you know, is subject to the halo effect. Um, and we see it all the time. Whoever you admire, they're rarely questioned. And I don't think it's a it, it, it's not an obedience to authority point, which is quite different. I think it's I think it's the halo effect and the fact that when people are held in such high esteem, which he is by his by his followers, they just choose not to. And, you know, the word is gospel. And we've seen that. We've seen that in many, in many jurisdictions. You've seen it with Jim Jones and his followers. So you have it with people uh, who I think automatically have power um, and, and, and to, who have that role. You might even have it in, in with experts. I mean, we all listen to experts and we don't query experts. So what, you don't query the doctor, you don't query the lawyer. Um, and we all know that, you know, um, the doctors, lawyers, and you know, so-called experts, and you know, they're expert relative to us. But we know that they make mistakes and that they're inconsistent, and that's been proven time and time again in behavioral science. So I think people have that tendency to just accept at face value the word of experts 
um, without actually questioning. And this, in this instance, you know, to his followers, Trump, I think, is, you know, a, an expert. Well, and to, to a large degree, uh, we learn about things in the world through other people telling us. I, I learned that the world was round from my mother. I, I didn't go out and measure it. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't go out and, and prove that or, or do any research to, to make sure that my mother was, was correct when she just told me, you know, I, I, I trusted her. And, and I think that it kind of gets into, you know, Steve Martin and Joe Mark's uh, mm-hmm. fantastic book about uh, the messenger is the message. And, and that, that is, is terrific. But, but I want to get back to the corporate. You brought up um, the implications in the corporate world. Tell us more about uh, your thinking along those lines, Nula. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess given that I have spent three decades in, in, in corporate life, I, I, see, I, see, I see a couple of issues here. And, and you know, the messenger effect is actually quite relevant. You know, the power and ego is quite relevant here as well. But even just employees. So, so I think there's a difference between the, 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 the people who are giving the message and the people who are getting the message. So let's just say you're in a company and you're receiving the message and the message the messages are usually generated you know top down and reinforced by internal comms, HR, etc. So cultural messages um, are really powerful and they're just repeated. So the more that anything is repeated in a company it becomes it becomes ingrained and you know whether it's whether it's true. So, so whether it's true or not. So this this you know the, the the mere exposure effect to constant messaging in companies. You know whether it's about results, whether it's about somebody's career ambition, um, really is important. But if you're at the top and you believe messages from, so we all know the difficulty that the higher you climb in a corporate ladder, you know you don't really have truth tellers around you. People are too self interested, and the, you know CEO the CEO has a very lonely role. So. You know, if the CEO is exposed to people who are deliberately or from fear not telling them the truth about, you know, certain issues that might be happening in a company, and there are plenty of examples of, of, of those, and they are in a very, very vulnerable position. So, but so if they are repeatedly told uh, a falsehood, if you like, or just just from fear that people, you know, are afraid to tell them what's really happening, um, you have you have you have a very very dangerous situation where CEOs of FTSE 50 companies or Fortune 500 companies are making decisions based on based on false premises, mm. and you know that can matter whether it's you know about about share shareholders, whether it's about you know mergers and acquisitions, whether it's about the value of of companies, new product timing, safety issues. It doesn't matter what the, what the issue is, but we've seen I think we've seen that time and time again, and that problem of CEOs and people at the top not challenging enough or inviting enough dissent critical thinking, query, devil's advocate, all the usual things that you would expect, I think is terribly dangerous and prevents learning and, you know, reinforces a cycle, a cycle, a cycle of error, decision error and judgment error uh, throughout companies. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I hear what you're saying, particularly around that, that cocoon that gets around senior leadership, right? And those, the yes people that, that are there to just reinforce the, messages that the, the that leader wants to hear. So how do you go about how what are some I mean you you mentioned devil's advocate. You mentioned, you know, queries and doing different things. But what are some of the ways that if I am a corporate leader, how can I how can I get out of that cocoon? How can I move past that in order to make sure that I'm actually hearing what's really going on out there? Do you know it, it's it's a great question, Kurt. And the problem is that people 
people in in the cocoon they're very smart i mean they're, they're not stupid people so they're very smart people they know this so they know they should get different opinions from people and and sometimes they do but again if you look at the studies and if you look at the findings and even if you base it on your own experience people don't move people don't move from their opinions you know people are intransigent it's confirmation bias over and over again so it's only the really smart ones and sometimes it might even be the insecure ones who do go out and you know deliberately have plant a devil's advocate having an ally people are now developing advisory boards so mm. people people at the c-suite are consciously trying to do this because they know that there's group think they know that there's the cocoon and people are either afraid or unwilling for self-interested reasons you know to, to share what's going on um you know, people at the top have to consciously get independent people, whether it's consultants, whether it's um, advisors. It, I think it really is the only the only fair way, correct way that they can try and, and, and mitigate against against their own bias, because ultimately it is their own bias. I mean, ultimately, they listen to themselves too much right. and, and you get into this this cycle of, you know, and it is an, it is an illusion of invulnerability. People think nothing will happen to them and they suffer. You know, they think they're always right. They listen to their own ideas and, 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 and intuitions. You know, you've got belief bias. You've got the endowment effect. Their ideas are always the best ones. And if you've made something, you know, you've got the Ikea effect. Yeah. And people just don't hear the truth about their own incompetence enough. <laughs> so I think a couple of those options uh, would, would certainly help. But, you know, the person has to commit. It's probably yeah. like the alcoholic. Yeah. You have to commit and you have to want to change and you have to want to to do that otherwise it's just lip service and other people are wasting their time <laughs> which is the good thing about tim and me tim tells me how much of an idiot i am all the time so i i, I don't have that cocoon around me it's only about half as many times as you <laughs> oh well all right if, if we're being fair here um, it, it's an interesting piece this i um just about what you were saying too about the 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 cultural messaging that happens and are those cultural messages that are being repeated are are they the ones are they actually factful and and then two you know where did they come from i remember um when i first joined actually the company where tim and i met um there was this you know kind of this the story that was going around that the the owner the founder who had years ago when there was a recession and and a person had lost their job and was about ready to lose their house, you know, gave them a $10,000 check. I have no idea if that mm -hmm. is true. Um, mm -hmm. Have absolutely no, there was no fact checking it, but it played into mm -hmm. the culture of this organization, that it was a family, that it was this. Mm -hmm. And so even if it wasn't true, it really impacted at least myself in how I thought about what type of organization this is and what it means. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, it, it's not necessarily always a bad thing. It just isn't always the, I don't know, the, 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 the truthful thing, I guess, is, is, is there. So... But it is power. It is powerful, Kurt, and you're absolutely right. And some of it's really positive. And at the end of the day, employees want to buy into the story. Mm. So employees want to think their leaders are terrific and the company is going to protect them if anything goes wrong and that they're surrounded by friends. And we have, that is absolutely natural and human instinct. We want to think that. We want to believe 
the narratives that were told, like we all have a positive self-narrative, you go to work, you want to believe that you're going to be fairly paid, that you're going to climb the ladder, be appropriately, um, you know, remunerated and promoted based on, on, on merit. I mean, that's what people subscribe to. That's part of the psychological contract that people have when they when they join a company or a particular culture. And I think you, you raise a great point. It is culture specific. And the, be, the better companies, you know, really harness, you know, these stories. Um, and that's the role of internal comms to some extent, but then it's also bottom up um, and top down. So it is this, this marrying of what people really believe. I mean, I think, there, I mean, a small example is I, I think with, with the George Floyd um, case, uh, recently, uh, I think it wasn't 1,600 people in Google petitioned against, you know, having police contracts renewed. I mean, it's the voice of 1,600 people in a very positive culture. So it was, they positively, collectively felt that they could make a stand, have a voice and say something. And that's born from a particular culture, you know, a culture of psychological safety and, you know, open expression, which is deliberately cultivated by that particular organization. Whereas you might have another organization on the other side where, um, where people don't feel that they can speak up and they do their own surreptitious surveys. I think it happened at Nike actually. Um, I think some fe- there were a group of females who felt that HR were ignoring their concerns. So they, um, you know, they, they did their own internal survey and then of course it, le- it leaked and there was there was quite a lot of noise made about that, but it was reputationally damaging for Nike. So the cultural stories determine whether whether the individuals have a voice and, and what kind of voice they have, and ultimately, you know, how cohesive it is. But 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 the norms, the cultural norms, are absolutely critical, and it's what we all buy into, and it's why people stay in the companies that they stay in. I've been very lucky in my career. I've had some fantastic, you know, cultures, and it's one thing you miss. But it's not, is it the culture or is it the people? It's the people. It's the people within that culture. Um, And I think that's what makes a difference and why people stay with organizations. Yeah, and I think that brings us back to how these normal people can fall under the sway of these different people, but it gets back Mm -hmm. into some of this work that that you've talked about from false memories and this idea Mm -hmm. that our memories are malleable and that we might have held a belief maybe as a when we were younger more idealistic and and that now when we look back on that if we've fallen underneath the sway of this we we tend to to remember that differently we we maybe didn't hold those ideals as strong or we we don't we remember that we didn't hold those ideals as strong or we held other ideals that were much stronger than they actually were how does that all play into i, I think there's probably some connection between the two I don't know if you can talk to that, but that would be fascinating, I think. Holding our ideas, I, I think of one individual when you when you spoke about that, um, Ted Bundy, for example. If you look at Ted Bundy and the life of Ted Bundy, right to the very end, to the very end, Ted Bundy controlled his audience. I mean, he did what he did. He denied it to the end. But he controlled his audience and badly wanted to control what people thought. And... There's a woman, there's a book by Anne Rule, who was his friend. She was a former police officer. She did um, uh, she did a hotline, you know, a suicide hotline with him in the evening. And she considers herself a friend. And she cannot get over how she missed all of the signs that he was what he was. And 
there's a there's a there's a quote where where he he talks about um how he he talks about himself with the alter ego and I wish I had the quote now but I don't have it since too long he like he, he used to say a lot of things about himself but but he he wrote about himself in the alter ego and he had made no apology right to the very end so even whatever memories he had he justified it right to the end um in, in terms of what he did but he described himself in really glowing terms but his identity and but my, my own conclusion on reading this was his identity as a serial killer he was quite happy with he basically said i'm quite happy with who i am after after all that had been done he wasn't it, there, was, there was no apology forthcoming but my point was around the identity he was very comfortable with it so whatever views he had as a child however it evolved um at the end and in his last kind of you know he, he spoke to a lot of a lot of writers at the very end and told a story told the story he wanted to tell, not mm-hmm. the story, the story he wanted to tell. And he told in this alter ego um, voice, which a lot of it was him, but again, plastered with, you know, with, with, with him sanctifying himself, of course, um, in the stories. But it, 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 it is very interesting. And as you say, it, that, that might shed some light on, you know, how we, how we evolve and how we develop. So whatever memories he have, you know, they evolved, but it links. I think it links quite quite closely to to identity. That is a little bit mind blowing when I think about our current president too, and some of the things that are going on there. But not to, no, I, I I don't want to go down that road right now. I was wondering if we could switch over and talk a little bit about some of your work on whistleblowers, because again, getting back to corporate the corporate world. Um, the stand, the bystander effect uh, is something that's been studied for some time. Um, but you've been you've been doing some digging in this, Nula. Tell us tell us about what uh, what your observations are right now. Um, yeah, I, I, I did. I, I have been fascinated by the bystander effect for, for for a very long time, and and the bystander research has evolved in waves, if you like. I mean, it did start in the seventies. You know, the the Latane and Darley uh, work. Um, around you know the, the murder of Kitty Genovese in, in New York where, where nobody intervened basically um, and so many years it still exists so I suppose what was really curious to me it was in my career watching people and we've all done it so it's not that it's not that we we sit sanctimoniously and say we've never done it we have all been bystanders and we probably will all continue to be bystanders in certain circumstances but the question is when it matters are we still bystanders? And what I wanted to try to get to was how can you get organizations to encourage people not to stand by, to speak up, now speak up in a secure um, external manner when it's a high consequence situation. Obviously, small stuff can be dealt with, you know, on, on that spot. So what I really wanted to do was explore was there a way where companies can use certain type of messaging um, or anything else to, to try to try try and influence it. So, you know, you've had you, you know you know Cialdini, you know him well, you know all the, the, the fantastic work that he's done around around social influence and norm based interventions. So there's been a rake of work done there, um, and there's also been a lot of work done in organisation whistleblowing. You know, in 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 the eighties. So only in the last five years not even five, actually three, um, have such things start called dynamic norms. So dynamic norms are basically the social norm, which are extrapolated to and will continue in the future. So it, it, it focuses on the, the, the bandwagon effect and the movement um, that people think assert that something's trending and it will continue. Therefore, I need to keep doing this too. 
So, you know, Sunstein describes this as one of the most important um, or exciting areas in behavioral science this decade. Um, the dynamic norm. So, of course, this had to be the basis of my, of my research. So I basically did a, 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 an RCT with nearly a thousand employees. And I was really my, my, my two questions were simply does exposure to, you know, certain dynamic norms amplify the employee's decision to whistleblow or to bystand? And does this differ by type of person, you know, male, female, you know, different personality types? And, and, and what, I, what I also wanted to test was emotion. So I was really interested to see what this triggered. So I had a huge database, um, far too many factors, of course, I tested, but I couldn't resist, so I did it anyway. <laughs> um, but, but the long and short of it is, is that um, what, I, what, I, what I basically found was that people, when it comes to something as emotive, as difficult, as, as involved as uh, whistleblowing, that people are initially incredibly intentional. Uh, in, in my case, um, 90, 91% said, oh, yes, they, that they would whistleblow. They were exposed to, um, it was a hypothetical bullying scenario using a vignette. And they said that they would whistleblow. But when they came to be tested at the end of the experiment, 9% took some action. Now, we know, we know that. And but I, what I found, you know, in, in, incredibly interesting there was the power, the power of, of emotion. So uh, in terms of everybody said they were going to do it, but when, when it came to it, actually very few did it. So there were, there were an awful lot of, I guess, surprises, if you like. I was surprised that despite the outrage and think outrage in terms of the reaction to Trump, the outrage and the depth of emotion, people didn't act, despite the perception and awareness of it being a trend. So the social norm did not work in this case. And this was the first experiment that had been done in whistleblowing um, using a social norm. It was the first experiment that had been done in an organization context, again, use, using this norm. So it was the first in many respects, but the outcome basically didn't hold up. So. That then asks the question, well, okay, well, if it didn't hold up, what can we do? Um, so what I found was, um, was that very interestingly, was that people or companies tend to rely on the wrong tools, the wrong types of people, and sometimes even the wrong triggers to get people to speak up. So from, when I, from, from tools, I'm talking about your code of conduct, you know, your, your rules-based um, programs, the thou shalt not um, rules that, that companies have all the time, but they, they were just, they're just so ineffective. And, you know, there, there are this chapter and verse written about that. Um, but when it came to people, people is an interesting one because, Kirsten, when we were talking about the cocoon earlier on, at high levels, we all know that, you know, typically the, 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 the majority of leadership positions are male and they are extroverts. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but actually extroverts has been found by a Harvard study. Most leaders are extroverts. Um, take that as you will, but that's, that's the study finding. So when companies are trying to encourage people to speak up, they typically, those CEOs typically look to their leaders to tell them what's happening. And there isn't enough of a focus on people through the ranks. So using the power of positive messaging, people didn't, people didn't respond to, uh, to, 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 for example, responsibility. So companies love to say, that responsibility, let's tell people, you know, it's your responsibility, you must speak up and you must report any infraction, um, et cetera. But when it came to 
it came to promoting just that, people didn't speak up. What got four times the response was actually anger. So a company that keeps messaging about responsibility isn't going to get people, because people are kind of responsible in their tasks during the day. They didn't feel as strongly about it when it came to speaking up against illegal or, or immoral or immoral conduct. So there is something there that I think is certainly is certainly worth looking at. Yeah, there is this huge, huge uh, say-do gap, right? The intention and behavior gap is monstrous to think about this. 90% say that they will, but only 9% actually act on it. Um, and and when w- w- just to continue this discussion about why, or what can we do about it? What can companies do? So in addition to, uh, to, to plumbing emotions, uh, you, you also talked about people. What are, the, what are the, the ways that an organization can use their people and their internal messaging to encourage more uh, or, or to decrease the bystander effect and to encourage more whistleblowing? Yeah, there are a couple of things that they can do. So I would say beyond the the safe speaking up culture, which is quite strong. I mean, that they're easy words, but that's very, very difficult to do it. So, for example, in terms of framing, there's a reframing. There's a whole reframing around this. So the word whistleblowing is negative. The word reframing, the word, the word speaking up is positive. So there's a whole shift in how companies can can get you know can rewrite how how they message to employees. So activating the positivity, even even appealing to to rational self-interest. So candidates who come from tainted companies, i.e., let's just say companies where there is low speaking up because they're scandalized, for example, earn 4%. And the scandalized companies earn 4% less. So by definition, you will earn 4% more. You know, it it, it will have a knock-on effect if you go to another company and if you leave. So positively turning these messages into uh, empathy, into rational self-interest is one thing. So there's a a whole, I speak to a lot of companies now about how to reframe their messaging. So there's another thing about rewarding employees. So again, it's all the behavioral science tools that can be used here. You reward the employees with relevant incentives. You, you know, and, and I don't mean financial, I mean, you know, recognizing, positively recognizing people, salient stories of courage, talking about People in the company, people outside the company who can do this. So, I mean, you can I mean, you can reference, you know, the Jeff Wiggins, you can reference the Harley Markopoulos, you can point to what happens when this doesn't work, but, or, but you can also point to people internally. And this is a delicate one. You can't just point to somebody internally. You can appropriately highlight teams where errors have been have presented disasters in companies Mm. so of course you can't pinpoint an individual because you've got you know personal risk and all of the rest there but if it becomes team-based and one of my findings was also that people prefer to report in teams as in report wrongdoing in teams so if you if companies encourage that and make it less secretive because the problem now is that whistleblowing or speaking up is secretive so it's not a social norm people don't know that it's happening and because what's secretive becomes develops its own narrative in itself. So there are a number of different ways um, that companies can now look at how to. And I've developed a reframe model, which actually, you know, has much. It'll take us a lot longer than, than today to, to, to go through it. But, <laughs> but in principle, there are so many, there are so many different actions and you wouldn't do all of them, but you would do some because it depends on the company size, maturity and what what activities they have in place already as well. So you, you have to just start with what people have and with where they want to go and where their people are psychologically. 
So there is a there is a there is a, a framework where you know a number of different areas. I think that 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 can be dialed up here, but there is no shortage of things that companies can do here if the spirit is willing and if from the top down they have a genuine interest in not just getting people to speak up but in listening up. So it has to be two sides. Um, of, uh, it is two sides of the same coin because you cannot get people to speak up into a dangerous environment. And unfortunately, many people have. And unfortunately, many people have paid the price. So this has to be done. And the more you make it open, the more you make it communal, the more you make it part of the, the cultural norm, the less the less fear that is induced. And people you know, typically haven't done this out of fear of consequences. Yeah. Well, Nula, you've talked a lot about how uh, you, you bring in behavioral science into organizations and using this behavioral science. And you have been uh, one of the founders of a new behavioral science organization, GABS, right? The Global Association of Applied Behavioral Scientists. So help us, th- just give us a little bit of an overview of what this is and, and what was led to its, its development. Well, it is a superb new initiative, I think, for the industry. Um, What it is, is basically a member-based organization for practitioners. It is, a governing body might be a little extreme, but it is a body that accredits uh, individuals or organizations who meet a set set criteria. And the genesis of it is, is really quite, 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 quite simple. The idea is that we were trying to avoid people who are unqualified, if you like, um, going out to companies claiming to be behavioral science who don't meet the brief because the implications for companies and for the field um, is really, really, it's really, really, it's really dangerous. This is an unregulated field that's, that's growing in popularity. The word behavioral scientist, according to Bloomberg, it's going to be the number one job uh, of 2021, if you believe Bloomberg. And oh. doesn't, it, doesn't it suit us all to believe Bloomberg? So, so <laughs> Is that fake news? There we go. Well, I don't know, but I'm choosing <laughs> to believe it because it's in my interest to believe such a thing. Um, and I'm sure many other are too. It used to be the data scientist, but now it's behavioral scientist. Um, so because of that, and because of the interest, and because of the need for behavioral science, the, this body really is just there to make sure that, like, you know, we provide a quality seal for behavioral scientists who offer a quality filter, if you like, for the companies using them. So it's a form of stewardship. It's a form of governance. And it's really good for the, for the, for the, for, for the members because they can say, I am part of GAPS. I've been approved by GAPS. And, you know, the criteria are pretty, you know, they're not overly stringent but they're stringent enough you can't just have read nudge you know to, to qualify so and that's what's happening what about nudge and predictably irrational <laughs> well now then you're in <laughs> now you're in no it's fantastic it, it is fantastic uh that that you guys are doing this and you've got a tremendous board of advisors you got danny kahneman and you got bob cialdini and and uh it's very, very impressive. And I really, uh, we wish you guys good luck. We wish all of you good luck to expand this because if, if in fact, behavioral science does become the number one job, well, wouldn't that be cool? Man, <laughs> <laughs> from that, that would be terrific. Uh, we only have a few minutes left and I 
have to get to talk to you about music. When you were building up this blah, blah, blah about, you know, singer, songwriter, Tim Houlihan, whoever he is, I thought you were going for Van Morrison. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was just a, that was a big departure for me. But uh, who, it's, so I'm sorry to prime the witness on this, but do you have a COVID playlist and who's on your COVID playlist? Uh, I, I do. I shouldn't tell you my Van Morrison story because it's embarrassing, but I will in my in my one minute of my three minutes. When I was very, very young, uh, I worked, I was in a record shop and the person I was with uh, really liked Van Morrison. Van Morrison walked into the record shop um, with, with some people and the person said, oh God, I'd really love his autograph. So I went running up Grafter Street because I decided I was going to be the hero in this case. So I went running up uh, the, the street and said, excuse me, Mr. Morrison, can I have your autograph? And he looked at me with a filthy look and he said, sure, and pointed to his friend beside him. <laughs> so, so Van Morrison is not on my hit list and I don't think I'm on his either. But if I did have a playlist, thing is how you did ask, um, I'm an 80s person, so I probably would have, um, I probably would have the Eurythmics, Tina Turner, Queen, um, it's quite eclectic as well. Um, I would probably have some of the Michael Jackson songs. I, the, 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 the Earth song is done by an opera singer called Carmen Monarca, which is amazing. So I would probably have, I do have that on my list. I have Sia, um, you know, Chandelier by Sia. I have a little bit of U2. So Van Morrison, no, but U2. Every Irish person has to have U2 there. Yeah. And one of my favourite songs of all time is, is probably... And believe it or not, Mr. Presley himself. So I've been to Graceland. Uh, I went on that Delta Pass for $200 when I was like 18, uh, 30 cities in 30 days. Uh, but I got there. I got there. And, you know, I, I would certainly have a little bit of um, the king in there as well. Fantastic. That's a fan. That's a really eclectic mix. I love that. So one of the things that we're always curious about is, do you like to listen to music when you work? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> silence? Um, silence. I listen to music when I run. That's about it. Yeah, Tim Tim needs silence too when he works. He he can't do that that work with, with music going on. Is it is it does he distract you or is it just something that you, you just don't find you know pleasing or what? Well, I'll tell you, it's a good question. I have when I have when I have a drink. Actually, I do. I, I get inspired. Um, if I want to write and if I'm kind of stuck for ideas, music will inspire me to write. That, and I, is that work? I don't consider that work. So when I'm mm. working, working, you know, if I was doing work for a client, no. But if I was trying to write or think creatively, um, a glass of wine and music and I, I, I would normally come up with some pretty eclectic ideas. <laughs> So, given your earlier answer, that's 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 in the evening then that you are that you're doing your writing. Is that that how that works? <laughs> We're hoping. Oh. <laughs> I would only prejudice myself if I answered that question. So I'm taking the fifth. You're pleading the fifth. Oh, fantastic, <laughs> Nula! Thank you. This has been really intriguing, and I think some of the the wonderful insights. And I, I'm sure that our listeners will get a lot out of this. So, thank you very much. Thank you to you both. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Nula, have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our false facts as true remembering brains. False facts as true. Yeah. Yeah. 
man, that's that's us human beings, isn't it? It it really is, and it actually goes to explain a whole bunch of what is going on, I think, in the world right now. And it's really not just a corporate issue, it's a worldwide issue. And it's just part of our, our natural way that we misremember so much of, of what we do. Yeah, we absolutely do. And given given things that have been happening in the United States at the state capitol, there's a lot of activity and a lot of behavior that's based on false facts. But we won't go into that. Let's. How about if we start our conversation, Anula, about the mere exposure effect? Because she, she brought this up and actually combined it with the above average effect and overconfidence effect as being the key contributors to our misremembering. Yeah. Well, you, you think about the mere exposure effect, right? This idea that the more you see something, the more that you tend to find that, that you like that or you believe that that is true. So this echo chamber of a world that we have where we hear the same information, even if it's false, over and over and over and over again, just by the fact that it gets exposed so often to us, we are more likely to believe it, which is really sad when we think about that, but that's kind of how it works. And so we have to be able to discern, uh, are we believing this just because it seems familiar because we've heard it so many times and that it's easier for our brain to process, which is what the mere exposure effect says, or is this actually true? Yeah, and you combine that with the above average effect, where or what we sometimes gets referred to as the Lake Wobegon effect, where you in know, Minnesota at in, least it is, yeah. at least in Minnesota, you know, this idea that that we really each of us really believe that we're above average, but of course that's statistically impossible. You know, half of us have to be below average; only half of us can be above average. And then the overconfidence, which just says, "I I really do believe that I am better, and and that I can do things that." Um, superhumans can do you know mm -hmm. when we when we combine all that together it those things conspire to make our memories feel like they're real when in fact they're not and this yeah. this is a real problem and i i think that this bleeds over into into the corporate life as well leaders are, can be subject to this especially where they think well i remember doing this and i, re I i'm taking credit for that because it happened on my watch or whatever and yet that builds up over time and leads to basically remembering fake news. Well, and, and you're the overconfidence effect, right? And the above average effect, like Wobegon piece. Uh, how many times, it, and maybe this is a this is more of a rhetorical question here, right? But, but how many times have you been in a conversation with somebody that you share this experience and then when you remember it, you remember it very differently? And both of you fully believe that you remember it the right way, right? It's like, there's no way I'm misremembering this. This is how it happened. And it happens all the time with my kids. It happens all the time with my wife. Uh, and and to that degree, we all believe that. I mean, to our hearts, in, in our heart of hearts, we believe our memory is right. And yet we know at least at some point, one of those two differing viewpoints has to be incorrect. And actually, probably more likely is that both of them are somehow incorrect right. in different right. ways, right? That's, yeah. So, so we, we are classic misrememberers, but the trouble is we rarely do we have the objective truth standing out there to to actually demonstrate to us that we're misremembering. Yeah. We don't have a videotape of our lives that we can rewind and go, Ooh, oh, sorry, let's take a look at this. Oh, play it. Oh yeah, that's right. I didn't say that. You said that. Okay. 
I'm yeah. sorry. I misremembered. Yeah. That's yeah. not how, it's not how life works. And even sometimes when you have those memory ta- or those tapes, like you look back and you go, oh, that must be fake. Cause oh. I, I remember it differently. Somebody, <laughs> somebody made a deep fake of me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, this, this, uh, you, you and I were talking about this a little earlier. This, this is a good recollection of James Deese's early work, right. On, on the way that we misremember or that we misassociate things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and McDermott and, and Rodiger did some really interesting work in the, in the nineties on, on this really looking at false memories, right? And and the idea, some of the cool research they did was doing these, these memory lists. Basically, you'd put together a, a list of words, you know, cold, winter, snow, um, you know, different shovel, pieces, yeah. shovel, various different pieces. And then you, you have let people have some time off and then you, um, uh, have them come back and and say what are the words on there? And oftentimes, on that list, people will put blizzard, even though blizzard wasn't even on that because it had that whole component of saying, "Hey, here are these things." And so people will misremember because it aligns with that idea of the group, right? That this is part of this yeah. group. And, the and syntax, I think, you, yeah, yeah, the syntax of it. And and what's really interesting about that is you tie that. You tie that aspect back in with confirmation bias and this, the anticipation of what an event is going to be, uh, the likelihood of misremembering f- things and believing those fake facts, right, is much higher because you have this element that says, hey, my confirmation bias is already leading me to see things in a certain way. Um and now I'm putting it into this group of this belief system that I have, and I'm going to fill in these blank spots with the ideas that I believe should be fit into there, as opposed to what is reality and what actually happened. So, absolutely, uh, the, there are also implications then for uh, leaders inside the cocoon. Basically, if if they if they are only living in this echo chamber. People who are are reporting to those leaders are probably not going to object. They're just going when the leader says, "Well, this is the way I remember it." Most people are just going to go, "Yeah, well, okay, that's not the way I remember it in my head, but I'm going to agree with the leader because he or she uh, is is leading the, the the group, the leading the business, you know, and I'm just going to go along with it." And it's really important for leaders to get outside of that echo chamber to be able to have some kind of outside counsel, I think, in order to work against this, this cocoon like experience that, that many have. Yeah, I think that's really true. And again, it, it only works if that outside counsel is somebody that the leader is going to, to trust and to be able to stand up because as you mentioned, right, it's that, that echo chamber that people have, it's the yes men or people, right? That are surrounding right. those leaders. And you don't have the dissenting voices. You don't have those, well, that's not how I remember it. And then having a conversation about it that may actually go back and say, oh yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. You're you're right. It was that instead of this, Right. And, and it's interesting because so Tim, Tim Rogers of the University of Wisconsin-Madison talks about memories and he says, look, uh, the, what we know is that um, memory studies show us that our memory is always a blend of what we know about the world generally 
plus what we retain from a recent experience. And it's adaptive because we're usually using what our memory is to cope with new situations. And so we use these and leaders use these memories to cope and to figure out what's going on in the current situation. Mm -hmm. And they're adaptive. We, We know that we recreate those memories. We know that they are not the, this video recording of what we're actually doing, but they are this recreation every time we remember them. And to a certain degree, it goes back to that confirmation bias. It's like, all right, if I, if this is the current situation and I am trying, I have a belief about what we need to do, my memory is more likely to confirm that belief than it is to disconfirm that belief. That is a really scary piece when we think about that. Let's talk about whistleblowers and bystanders, right? This is, uh, this is the second major part of what Nula uh, talked about with us. And it really got me thinking, especially when she started working through the tips, how important it is for us to practice, how important it is for us to have some training in how to deal with being a whistleblower and not just being a bystander. Uh, because that's not something that uh, that we do, right? That's not something yeah. that we have to deal with on a regular basis. And uh, without practice, it's going to be really hard for employees to, A, know what to do, and B, make sure that they feel comfortable within the cl- within the culture, that it's an okay thing to do. Right. And, and, And to that point, the culture part is really important here, right? It's making sure that you have a culture that is accepting of a whistleblower. And those are subtle things, right? Those are the, those unsaid looks and different pieces when you are presenting a dissenting view, pushing back on some other things, not even like a full whistleblower type piece, but what is the culture that you are engendering within the organization that lends itself to a person saying, yep, I, I think this is great and, and I feel really safe in being able to bring this concern I have to life to leadership or outside uh, without feeling that I'm going to be, you know, put in danger or potentially lose my job or be reprimanded for that. And I loved her research, right? That research is 99% said that they would whistleblow, but then when they actually got into actually doing it, it was only 9%. It gets back to that practice part that you talked about. Absolutely. Maybe we, we could just quickly run through those tips because I think they're so fantastic. And and maybe we start with the last one because you said culture really matters. And her last tip was to make it normal. Mm-hmm. Like this whole idea of let's build a culture where it's okay. In fact, it's not just okay. It's normal to identify somebody who's doing something uh, bad and, right. and that that's accept- not just acceptable, but supported. Yeah, because you can't get you cannot get people to speak up in a dangerous environment, right? And <laughs> right. that is just this really piece, a uh, big piece of this. So make sure that uh, that culture is open, that you make it more communal, that you you really push this team element. That you're saying yes, this is really key for the team um, to be able to look at this and not have the diffusion of responsibility that often while somebody else will make the whistleblower that, no, this is my responsibility as part of that culture. So I think that's really cool. What, what else do we have there, Tim? I I think that the second big tip that, that I really loved was reframing, you know, Mm -hmm. Nula said that whistleblowing is a negative word. So let's reframe this, right? Let, let's actually get a more positive spin so that companies can shift how we look at the idea of, of, 
uh, being someone who is a good corporate citizen, not just a whistleblower. Yeah, and I think an- another key piece of this is is leaders have to think. We we think that oh, whistleblowing or or calling attention to these bad things that a company is doing has a has a bad you know economic effect on the company. But in in reality, what she's saying is, look, scandalized companies have a much bigger impact. Yeah. And so, if you can catch it, if you can have this open. A culture where people are bringing these up so it doesn't become a big scandal, that is really a positive thing for the company, the stakeholders, everybody that you you really want. So I think yeah. that's good. And, and she also talked about rewards and recognition, which she talked about them separately, but you know, we oftentimes bring them together because I think that they do fit nicely together. And this is the whole idea of of taking away the secrecy. Like, make sure that teams feel comfortable uh, with with the training that they need to prevent disasters, right? To actually act in a in a, a, a more uh, proactive way. And the way that you do this is by recognizing people who are doing the right stuff and by rewarding them in non monetary ways, right? You, know, you don't want to don't want to be paying people bonuses for being whistleblowers necessarily, but uh, not. Necessarily. I don't know. I mean, there, there there could be times where that might actually be a, a good thing to do if your culture is such that it's really negative. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's obviously contextually dependent, dependent upon the culture, depending upon the industry. But there are those times where it may actually be something where, hey, there's an economic impact for me highlighting the facts of where we might get in trouble and the people that are doing bad things. So there are some aspects of that that I would say, hey, let's take a look at that. Don't just disregard that out out of hand. All right. With that, folks, uh, thank you for for listening. Note, we talked a little bit about Gabs uh, and note that that Nula is going to be on another episode with us coming up in the next few months where we're actually going to go take a deep dive into gap so stay tuned for that because mm-hmm. that'll be a fantastic fantastic episode and where she's going to have another guest um, at this point tbd but it's going to be awesome and that's going to be great and with that stay tuned for a bonus track with tim Night is just another Ryan. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with your bonus track and groove idea for the week. In our conversation with Nula, we focused on two critical issues that face our world today. The first is how our memory has a difficult time differentiating between recollections of factual news and fake news. Our political and business leaders need to keep this in mind as they communicate with the citizenry and their employees because misinformation can spread just as easily as truisms. We simply have too many biases that will contribute to us misremembering the facts if we're barraged by repeated fake information. Our second point of conversation with Nula was about whistleblowing, and she reviewed several key ways that leaders can take steps to make their corporate cultures more conducive to calling out bad behaviors when employees see them. The list is worth a review, and they're in the show notes. For your groove idea for the week, we'd like you to think about what Nula said regarding her study on whistleblowing. 
She said 90 to 99% of employees indicated they'd call out bad behavior, but only 9% actually did it. We know that it takes practice to do just about anything that is unfamiliar. So if you're a leader in an organization, walk your team through an exercise to role play identifying and calling out bad behavior. What would that bad behavior look like? What words would the employees use to describe the bad behavior? And who would they tell and how would they tell them? By giving your employees the opportunity to walk through an imaginary scenario by using real words and asking them to make real decisions about who they tell and what they'd say, all of those things arm your employees for the undesirable day when they actually experience bad behavior in their job. You can make a difference and we urge you to give it a try. Well, with that, Groovers, it's time to wrap up another episode of Behavioral Grooves, and we hope that this week you take what you learned from NULA and go out and find your groove.